Hello, and welcome to the NHSR podcast. I'm going to stop saying the episode number just because there are some other episodes being recorded by someone else, and I really don't know what order they're going to come out in, so it'll just be, end up being wrong. So welcome to the podcast. We're recording it on the 14th of June, 2022, and it will be out whenever the schedule says that it can come out. As I say, there's a few other things going on at the moment. So we are NHSR. We are a community of data scientists in the UK who work in health and social care. And we use open source tools to do analysis and data science. And we like to also share our analytical code in an open source type fashion. I am Chris Beely. I'm a data scientist. I work in Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. And I am also the co-chair of the technical advisory group of NHSR. And today I have with me Jess Morley, who many of you will know from the Goldacre Review, but who's done lots of other interesting things to boot. So I'll just ask Jess to introduce herself now. Hi, um, thanks so much for having me. So uh, as Chris says, I'm Jess Morley. I am a researcher in the University of Oxford. I have two hats. I am the Director of Policy at the Oxford Bennett Institute for Applied Data Science, which, as Chris mentioned, is run by Professor Ben Goldacre. And I am also a PhD student at the Oxford Internet Institute. And I have been bouncing around NHS data space for about 10 years. Great. Thank you very much. Right. So let's kick off. So the first question is, so we'll be talking just to give a little flavor about what we're talking about. There'll be two main strands today. So we'll be talking about sort of AI and ethics and stuff that uh, Jess has published a lot of papers on. And we will also be, of course, touching a little bit on the Goldacre Review towards the end. So the first question is in our sort of AI and ethics type space. So I wonder if you could just talk about some of the risks that associate with using AI in healthcare. Yeah, uh, so I think there's a couple of things. So first of all, I always try and say when people ask me this question that one of the biggest ethical risks is that we don't even try. So there, there is a sort of, whether you take a human rights-based approach or an ethics-based approach, there is an argument to say that anything that has the possibility to save lives, improve lives, etc., we have a sort of ethical duty to try and investigate it and make sure that if there are any opportunities, we're sort of capitalising on them. At the same time, I think sometimes AI can kind of get a bit presented as a little bit like a magic bullet. It's very much like, oh, the AI can do this. And if you go and follow the hype train all the way through, you can sort of start believing that no one's ever going to die. We're going to solve everything with, with data and AI. I think the, the biggest risks that are associated with that are to do with what I call reontologizing, which is a big, long, complicated word that basically just means completely fundamentally changing the nature of healthcare. So if we think about what matters to us in healthcare, we we care about being treated like a whole person, being treated like a human. We tend to want empathetic care and for people to understand us in that way. And we tend to want to be treated with kindness and empathy once we when we realize that we are sick with with AI, because everything is quantified, right? We're talking about only things that are measurable in a data space and quantifiable in a data space a lot of that human aspect of healthcare can can go it can be missing and we forget to take into account things like what people's feelings are you know you know your body better than anybody else you definitely know your body better than an algorithm but an algorithm is not necessarily going to be able to measure those types of feelings and sensitivities so there's that sort of aspect of changing the nature of what does it even mean to provide healthcare and also what does it mean to be to define someone as ill or sick or unwell because most of AI is predictive or preventative and so it's all about 
monitoring every sort of aspect of your life and determining how and when or why that might change your risk profile for different types of diseases, which sort of makes everybody sick all the time because there's always room for improvement. And there's a sort of element there of some potential blame factors. I think, you know, we can say to people, oh, well, your ex type of behavior is increasing your risk of Y type of disease. You should change your behavior. But not everybody is capable. There are lots of things to do with the social determinants of health, whether that be people access to resources or whatever that might prevent them from taking those types of steps that may change their risk profile. And that can make somebody sort of blamed for becoming becoming unwell. So those are the sort of philosophical risks. There are more data science and quantifiable risks, which people might be more familiar with, whether that be things like data bias, accuracy, sensitivity. So that's whether or not an algorithm, a predictive algorithm or a diagnostic algorithm works the same for everybody. Um, We know a lot, for example, that uh, algorithms that do things like heart rhythm detection tend not to work on people with darker skin as well. There are all sorts of things like that, that we also have to be aware of that we might also call the more quantifiable types of ethical risks associated with AI. And those two things sort of broadly fall into the sort of epistemic, which is the types of knowledge, that's the data side of things, risks, and normative risks, which is the the social and acceptability types of risks that I described at the beginning of that long blurb. Yeah, I will throw in, actually, I did, I confess, complete ignorance of Jess before we hit record about this kind of thing just so I didn't make an idiot of myself and I stand by that but I do have an interest in it actually listening to you is that I have done some work it's a very modest but I've done some work producing text mining algorithms for patient feedback and I think that's Mm -hmm. a really good example of something where because what I don't want to quantify stuff that's what I've always said throughout is I want the algorithm and we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast before actually we want the algorithm to kind of sift and sort and aggregate and help and structure human judgment because i think patient experience obviously is a really good example of something that actually isn't quantifiable and that stands on its own so having said all that so can you just talk to us about mitigating the risks and what can we do about it yeah of course so i think the main thing is just to be aware and i also think you've just touched on it then in that little spiel you gave um is not relying on the algorithm to be something that's sort of independent and can make decisions, et cetera, on its its own and completely removing the human from the loop. You're gonna get a lot more benefit from seeing algorithms, AI, whatever you wanna call it, clinical decision support as support, as augmenting the human, as dealing with the fact that healthcare is phenomenally complex and we're generating huge amounts of knowledge every day it's unrealistic to expect humans to be able to be like keep up with all of that but an algorithm easily can and can help augment or assist the human in keeping up with the latest information and the latest knowledge so that's a sort of very prosaic thing there are also much more practical things there are things to do with for example making sure we have access to verified and representative data sets so not training a diagnostic algorithm on a data set that is entirely populated by people who look like me as in you know i'm cis and white and all of that kind of thing and making sure that we are aware when there are gaps in the data that we're using for training so it's extremely unrealistic to expect us to produce anything that is going to work 100% for 100% of people 100% of the time that's not how drugs work but we have mechanisms in place 
to know when things are going to be less effective for people in drugs. And so we should put in place those types of mitigations and frameworks for AI as well. Know where the biases are, make sure they are declared, make sure people are testing them, make sure there is evaluation and evidence generation, which just doesn't happen consistently in this space at the moment. Like there's been a couple of really excellent meta-analyses that have gone and looked at what are people reporting in terms of the quality and by and large, AI studies in general, but particularly in healthcare, are a bit like, hey, we made this whizzy thing and it does it better than a human at recognizing this one specific thing. When we test it in a perfect scenario inside a lab with a professional camera and there's nothing else going on, that and that's where it stops. There's then no real world testing. There's nothing like looking at what happens when you deploy that same system that worked perfectly in isolation in the lab if I then put that in place in terms of a care pathway what does that actually look like so an example I often use is breast cancer screening so we know breast cancer screening is an extremely expensive service for the NHS to run we know that algorithms are very good at doing abnormal normal abnormal normal abnormal normal when you look at a scan but all that actually does is massively increase our ability to recognize and quote unquote diagnose people with breast cancer it does nothing to help us increase our capacity for actually treating those people so you have potentially created a scenario where we've actually just given a lot of people some potentially quite damaging news that's very harmful to their sense of self and their mental well-being but not improved access to care in order to treat them so i think being aware of where these different ethical issues and harms can be introduced in that whole pathway from right from the collecting of the data, making sure it's representative through to validating the algorithm and does it work and where does it break through to testing it in real world scenarios, through to evaluating it on actual patient impact as opposed to just statistical measures. Yeah, great, you made a hugely accurate algorithm. Fantastic, what difference did it make to people's lives? Then having a situation at the other end where you've got things in place to monitor the ongoing effectiveness and the impact. And finally, I think and this doesn't get said enough. Make sure you have a process in place for turning the thing off. If you suddenly find that you're using a diagnostic algorithm and it's having a really negative impact on one group of people or the whole care pathway, there has to be in place mechanisms for making the decision to go, this is not working in the way that we wish it would, and now we're going to turn it off. And that's really not in there. Whereas for other types of medical devices and medical products, we have that entire pipeline and we know how to protect patient safety. So I think it's a little bit about not seeing this as some huge new magical mythical thing that is somehow exempt or you know absolved from the rigor and the requirements that we put through drugs or medical devices through for anything else and subjecting it to the same sort of requirements in that sense i suppose yeah yeah it's quite interesting i can't remember who what it was now but someone said the other day that we should have a netflix nhs and I remember thinking at the time that, you know, Netflix is a lot of a simpler problem, isn't it? It seems like a very unhelpful analogy. Yeah, I think I think that was um, 
the health secretary, Savage Javid, who was saying yeah. the NHS, the NHS is a blockbuster in an age of Netflix. So yes, you've very, very well illustrated the point that I think that actually there's, you know, there's so much more to than just picking a film, isn't it? It's, it, there's a whole kind of panoply of things going on behind. Exactly, and I think there's often like a disconnect between the types of people who are involved, right? So if you if you think about people like you and me, um, and others who work in health data space, like my entire career has been based inside the NHS. I'm still not a clinician, but I could have a pretty good conversation with you about what it means to provide good quality and high quality healthcare. But you have a lot of people who are sort of in the AI space, and it's going to sound like I'm being incredibly derogatory. I don't necessarily mean it in that way, but they're tech bros. You know, oh, I can fix a problem. Like, you know, this is a, this is a thing and I can run a machine learning algorithm at it. And because I know how to make the code work, I know how to sort of solve the, solve the health problem, but have had no experience of the complexity of healthcare. And I think that disconnect at the moment really doesn't help us keep track and put in place sensible mitigating measures for these types of risks that we're, that we're discussing. I mean, we saw it during COVID, didn't we? I've seen a couple of papers that said basically there was a lot of activity during COVID and most of it was completely useless. Yeah, exactly. There was a huge proliferation of, oh, we can predict who's got COVID or, yeah, yeah, or we yeah. can look at it. As, like, it's like, well, yeah, but you've actually made no difference to frontline care. So <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a, a reasonable segue onto our next uh, area, which is so we talked about risks and mitigating. So how do we increase public trust? In, in both in algorithms and also in, in the sort of privacy of data and, you know, the data storage, that kind of thing? I mean, this is such a huge question. I think, <laughs> I think that the, the sort of the starting point is don't take public trust for granted and also don't borrow trust from elsewhere. So there's a real tendency. I think there's got slightly better at recognising not like this is a bad idea, but there is definitely a tendency to borrow trust from the NHS brand and trust in clinicians and think that that will apply to anything that it does. So just because I have a huge amount of trust in the NHS, you know, there's three little logos and I know that if I get taken to a hospital, people are going to take good care of me. It does not necessarily mean that I automatically trust you to do things with my data. And so first of all, just not taking it for granted and not borrowing, not borrowing trust. Then I think there are huge numbers of practical uh, sort of steps that can be taken to improve trust. And it's not really trust, it's trustworthiness. So it's something that, you know, you can, you can check and you can validate and you can verify. And trust is something that comes as a subsequent result of those sort of steps to trustworthiness. So hence using things like keeping data inside trusted research environments, making sure privacy is quantifiably and verifiably protected we're not just taking people's names and addresses off and sending it to a tech bro in california to, to develop an algorithm making sure that there's meaningful transparency so transparency i think is a word that often gets banded about really loosely oh we, we're going to be transparent about how how we use how we use people's data and then nine times out of 10, what that means is I'm going to put a privacy notice up that's like 15 clicks through on someone's website. That That's not meaningful transparency. Meaningful transparency means that me, Joe Bloggs off the street, can find out what it is that you're doing with my data, who had access to it, what they did with it, 
what was the rules that were governing its use and can I can I actually find all of that information out in in a meaningful way and similarly accountability we just don't at the moment take the I don't know like the the bigger implications and ramifications that can come with people using data in a negative way or in a non-socially acceptable way seriously enough you know we might give some people some fines we might like say oh slap you on the hand please don't do that again but if you look at this big audit that was published in the bmj a couple of weeks ago with the number of people who had breached uh, nhs data sharing agreements and nothing had happened to them but like you know their access hadn't been revoked they hadn't been sort of publicly called out like, so we've got to hold people accountable in a genuine way make sure that people are genuinely sanctioned and know that it's not okay to do things that are sort of not socially acceptable or justifiable or even just frankly legally compliant so those are the sort of practical steps you can take then there are again far more normative steps i suppose so building public conversation, making sure people are involved in decisions right from the start. There's a real tendency, I think, in this area to do what I sometimes refer to as performative PPIE, so performative public involvement engagement, where you just go and ask people a bunch of questions in a survey. Do you trust hospitals to have access to your data? Yes. Do you trust Google to have access to your data? No. Okay, but that's a closed question. There's no nuance there. There's no discussion. There's no, uh, there's nowhere to go. Whereas actually much more discursive and involved types of conversation with the patients and public, whether that be through citizens' juries or ongoing dialogue, where actually you get to understand in a genuine way what it is that makes people not trust certain types of uses of data and what's done with them and then actually act on that feedback and advice that's like it sounds really simple but it's just not happening at the moment so I think those sort of things to do with privacy and security and building trust do it in a meaningful provable verifiable way and have meaningful and genuine and actionable conversations with patients and publics uh, in terms of building trust in things like algorithms or AI I honestly just believe it needs to be more about breaking down the mystification and obfuscation so there's a huge amount of like mysticism I think that surrounds AI mostly because you just use the word AI but it's never really defined in the press no one ever tends to explain it what it actually means there's often sort of trickery sounds negative but AI is sexy right so you can get money for doing AI quite often what people are saying is AI is actually linear regression so there's just a, something about being honest about what we actually mean by these phrases and then the same logic would apply make sure you're telling people when AI is being used make sure you're telling people how it was trained, what factors it's taking into account, making sure you're giving people meaningful means to uh, opt out of it being used in their care pathway, if that's appropriate, meaningful decisions around whether or not they want to know every single thing about the risk profile of them as a human being, like, and involving them in those decisions, I think, can go 
a huge, huge way. There, then there are much more scientific data science things you can do, like making sure that there's explainability built into the algorithm so I can tell how it's making a decision. Like it's diagnosing me with this particular condition because I answered in these certain ways to these specific questions. Um, but really it's about myth busting and taking away the sort of mysticism that surrounds the whole conversation at the moment. Yeah, it's sort of, it's quite an unhelpful term, I always think, AI, because it's, it, as you say, it's very big, isn't it? So it goes all the way from algorithms that are extremely sophisticated and can, you know, I mean, Google said something a little while ago, nothing to do with healthcare, where they could ring and book a, a, a hairdresser appointment for you. And it could have the whole conversation, which is amazing, phenomenal work. But people are calling AI what you're saying, as I say, it's just, it's just linear regression. Yeah. And it's okay to have them in the same box, but that's a very, very, very large box indeed. It's a huge box, yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering where, it's interesting what you were saying about not using the brand and all that kind of thing. I wonder where does the involvement of universities and sort of corporate entities kind of fit into the picture of trust with the public? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I will say off the back, I don't really believe in sort of role-based ethical probity. So what I mean by that is there's a little bit of a tendency to oversimplify these things and say NHS good commercial companies bad like sort of as a sort of automatic type of response and I can totally understand why why that happens but things are a little bit more a, a lot more nuanced and more complicated than that like just because you come from a trusted organization doesn't mean that you can't do something horrendously unethical with with people's data similarly just because you've protected privacy doesn't stop you from doing something horrendous horrendous with people's data so i think first of all again it's about having more realistic and more open conversations so we tend to i think gloss over slightly the role that third parties and commercial organizations and universities are playing in research and service analytics because we know that it makes people slightly feel slightly uncomfortable but there's also something enormously beneficial to be said about letting different parts of the system do what they do best the nhs is fantastic about understanding its own services it's fantastic about delivering care it's maybe not as great at doing some of the stuff that can get lumped under innovation or, or, for, or forward thinking or developments of new drugs or whatever, because it doesn't have the skill set and it doesn't necessarily need to. But that does mean you have to bring in third parties, um, whether that be universities or commercial organisations. But I think the reason there's a sort of, I would say, like a trust deficit in those areas at the moment is mostly because people are very rarely told until something goes wrong like if we think about the the big ones that people always reference that might be royal free and google DeepMind and the development of the streams app that sort of got pulled up in, in front of the ico now there was nothing inherently wrong with what they were proposing to do developing an app that makes it easier for clinicians inside a hospital to more accurately recognize the symptoms of acute kidney injury is definitely a good thing but nobody was told upfront that the benefits of what that was doing, how the data was being protected, whether or not people had the option to consent. They only really found out about it after it had happened and after it had gone wrong. And it happened by handing over the records to Google. They left the NHS environment. And I think it's that sort of, oh, well, 
oh, where has my data gone? I've not been told. I don't know what they did with it type of thing. That is really hand, like hindering the development of meaningful trust with these types of partners. Whereas I think if we can separate slightly who can see the data, the data shouldn't leave an NHS environment. It should stay within control of the NHS. And what is being done with the data, we would get an awful lot way forward with, with building trust, particularly if we start putting in place uh, mechanisms to ensure people are told up front and people, whoever they are off the streets, can go into their GP and say, well, where is my data gone? I want to know who's had access to it and what's being done with it. And the big thing, the final aspect of that curve is sort of ending the circle. So one of the things that research about trust says again and again and again and again is the biggest thing that people actually want is for their data to be used for purposes that actually end up delivering benefit back to the system. Now, very often that loop is not being closed. People are not being told what was done with the results. They aren't being shown how that happened. They are not necessarily even translating into benefit. And I think we've got to get better at that, like translating research results into meaningful impact on, on frontline care and communicating that in a way that makes sense to patients and publics would make a huge difference to improving that relationship with, with universities and, and commercial partners. And, and we shouldn't, again, I also should say that we um, shouldn't necessarily separate them into two separate categories. They definitely sit in adjacent blocks, like university research is often publicly funded, whereas private companies or commercial companies are privately funded. But those clear lines are not always as clear as people might like them to be. And we should be aware of that as well. Yeah, it reminds me, it's the same thing, actually, with patient experience. That's what they always say, mm. is that when people give their opinion or their experience, that's all they want. They just want it to improve things. So that's a big, big part of it. Um, it's Talking about the what, what's gone on in, in the sort of corporate world and Google and that kind of thing makes me think of the old, the old tech adage. Um, it's easier to seek forgiveness than to ask permission. And I confess I've said that myself many times, but I suppose this is making me think that actually that's not always, that doesn't always apply, does it? I think this is a really good example of where you shouldn't use that adage because actually it's, it's in the long run, it's actually harmful because people are taking away, you're eroding trust essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think when it comes to people using their data, it's definitely better to ask for permission. But I think there is also a need to be sensible about what does that actually mean? So like, Typically, that has been translated, I think, into this idea that you need to give one-to-one consent. Can I consent to this specific type of data use in this specific scenario? And now if you're thinking about the population size of even just England, we're talking about 65 million people, like that, that starts to get extremely unrealistic. But there are better ways of handling that permission and that trust from the very beginning so that people don't you don't need to do that individual consent but you're also not asking for forgiveness once something has gone wrong yeah okay cool right so we've we've talked about our kind of ai ethics and data disasters and all that kind of stuff which i think nicely or i hope it certainly does nicely set up the the second chunk so how does all this how does your work on kind of ethics and data and AI, how did that inform the work that you did on the gold review so i suppose in a couple of ways one i am a random floating social scientist in a data scientist group. Uh, So everyone else in my Bennett Institute can write 
way, way, way better code than me and definitely <laughs> knows statistics a hell of a lot more than me. But when it comes to understanding, uh, I suppose that there's interaction between technical design and sort of softer concepts like trust and transparency, etc. And that talking to people about the law, but also ethical frameworks and all of that is equally as important as it is to say, hey, a trusted research environment should have these specific technical features. So I think that's really how I would say that my work on um, social science and ethics and stuff informed informed my my role in the Goldacre Review was making sure we were never thinking of just technical stuff, making sure we always say things like several times in there. It's not just about privacy, it's about purpose. And like the chapter on chapter five, which is sort of IG, uh, so governance and ethics and, and participation and involvement is is much more me than, than maybe some of the other chapters yeah so and what was it like so uh just talk us about the process did you get good participation across the system and is there anything that you kind of that you'd like to get more of and kind of feel you missed out on well we got we got fantastic engagement i think potentially more engagement than uh we were expecting so in terms of the process like between maybe February 21 and June 21 uh, we spoke to and interviewed either in small groups or one-to-one well over 300 people from across the system and then we did some much bigger sort of openly published like focus groups that people could register for um, and they were all massively oversubscribed so I suppose if I was like saying what I wish we could have done more is I wish we could have spoken to everyone who registered their interests. Like I think, for example, the the NHS analyst one was maybe three three times oversubscribed. Um, and I, I wish we'd had the capacity to run that focus group three times over so that we could have spoken to everyone. But with two people, that was just never going to be practically possible. I think as well, there's also always a slight risk with these types of things where you throw the net so widely open uh there's always a slight risk that you're going to disappoint people um because there is a little bit of a like people would never ask for a horse they're going to never ask for a car they're going to ask for a faster horse type scenario and then if we give them a car at the end of the process they're going to be like hey but this is not a faster horse like what's up um and so i think because we spoke to so many people and the terms of reference were always already super broad and the final thing is itself like insanely long it's longer than both Ben's published books <laughs> that, that um, I, I do think there's probably some areas that people have rightly said oh you haven't covered like we don't talk a lot for example about the quality of research that's done once people have access. We sort of touch on it in terms of talking about how open working and sharing of code and knowledge can lead to better analysis and better results, but we don't talk so much about the other types of quality checks you might want to put in place. And people have rightly pointed that out to us. I think people have also rightly pointed out that a lot of our responses and recommendations are quite central focused and we don't necessarily think so much in detail about the nuances of 
what it's like if you are in a NHS trust somewhere up north with at, with a lot less access to the types of resources that we are describing in in the review and I think again that's a, a very valid uh, critique or sort of extra layer of complexity that we we definitely didn't talk about in enough detail so I sort of wish we could have paid more attention to those areas of of additional complexity and also maybe set things up a little bit better at the start to say that we're only covering these these angles and these other areas that you're bringing to our attention are really important but then they're not our focus or they're not our bag so that we wouldn't have disappointed people or we wouldn't have given the impression that we were being too centric um but by and large I'm really happy with what the level of engagement that we got and and the response it has been pretty positive and the data strategy came out yesterday which we're we're very happy with so all good yes i was skimming that i haven't read it properly yes but i skimmed that yesterday and was so uh, yeah very mm-hmm. very pleased yeah i'm really proud that you said that we was, i didn't know it was three times over subscribed the nhs analyst one so speaking to nhs analyst myself i'm quite proud of us for having an opinion so what so i think there's some energy left over then isn't it so do, what do we do with that energy what do you think whether out of the nhsr community or just you know the, the analytical community generally like what, what do you think are the next steps so i think the data strategy which responds to the review and like i said it came out yesterday it's a fantastic document i mean it it had you know says says the words in there publicly funded research should have publicly open code which i just never thought i would see in a in an in an nhs sanctioned document so i think what that does is give people cover to go ahead and champion and push for things much 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 more so than maybe they would have felt comfortable in in the first place so i i I think grassroots organizations whether that be nhsr whether it be some of the people who are involved with AFA or nhs python or whatever should be going and saying look you've said in this document that you want there to be a much greater use of of code and open code and sharing and use of script-based analytical tools, et cetera, where can I go to get money and funding and resources to put on a training course for all of the senior leaders in, inside NHS England so that they are much more data literate and they, they know what I'm talking about. Um, and I think NHSR already does a huge amount of like meetups and training courses and, and talking to people. I'd really love that to become bigger and to scale and for organizations like yourselves to be given the resources to to do that and that does require championing but I think the fact that the data strategy has responded so positively to that then that sort of gives cover Um, and then more prosaically I suppose like do tell us where we got things wrong or where you think things could be even better or where things are still being blocked like we talk a lot about in the review common i suppose misconceptions or blockers or barriers to working in the open and there's absolutely no way that every single one of those barriers is covered adequately in in the data strategy and there's an awful lot of energy and pent-up i suppose power or whatever in in the community to start tackling those barriers and if you need people to go and bang on the doors of NHS England, there's an awful lot 
of benefit in doing that as a community and writing things in the open and advocating for it and telling people like um, Ben or myself or whatever who are very happy to continue writing and advocating for this stuff. We've already got quite a lot of plans, I think, to do some more co-written type stuff. Uh, So big co-written open letters or documents saying this still needs to be better. And we're hoping to run a big sort of conference maybe in like six months time that would, I suppose, take an on-conference feel. Uh, So those, those I think are the most immediate next steps. Continue to advocate, continue to do what you're doing. Say that you've got the cover now and that you should be giving giving the resources in order to go ahead and do even more of the great stuff that you've already been doing. Yes, I was very happy. I'm going to give a plug to the NHSR because this is the NHSR podcast, but obviously it's not all about um, NHSR. So I was very happy all the stuff that obviously we get a decent billing in the report, which I was very happy about. Um, And yeah, it certainly sounds like there's some work that can be done making new stuff as a community and also with everyone else in the analytical mill like yourselves i saw a success story the other day actually i, I think it was it because of the gold egg review i can't remember i might try and dig out the tweet there was some dude somewhere basically and he's been wanting to open source his work for years and not being allowed to and he just popped up on twitter and said finally i've got this all through and i've finally got all the senior managers to agree so he's wanted to open source it the whole time and he said here it is the whole thing mit license and he just dumped the whole thing on the internet oh amazing and everyone immediately was applauding and you know it was amazing and you know you just think if that was repeated you know again and again and again i will try and put a link in the in the show notes if i can uh, dig it out but that's all it takes, isn't it? Just a bit of permission and people, because people want to do it. That's why I would exactly. say people want to work this way, but they're being blocked from doing so. Exactly. I th- And I think that's all we really wanted to achieve in that regard was to get a clear statement from the centrist government, which we now do, that this is 100% permissible. It's not even just permissible. It's not just, oh, can I ask permission to do it? It is actively the strategy and the direction of travel people want to go. And if you are being blocked from doing that, now there's some things that you can go and point at. And then, yeah, celebrate it to the world because like, what an amazing achievement that is. Um, you know, that there's so much rightly so championing and clapping and all of that celebrating of people who worked and who continue to work on the front line in clinical care I would like that same level of recognition and celebration and championing to happen for the people who run the code to make sure that those services are working in the way that they are behind the scenes but are not as obvious I would love for them to get the same level of recognition and you know doing things like throwing stuff up in 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 public and then celebrating hey look i did this amazing thing you might not think it's amazing but everyone who's already in this space is going to know that this is awesome and really build that sort of community spirit i suppose and championing of each other um i think just be wonderful yeah i always yes it, it, it annoys me slightly we're getting off this a bit now but i'm just going to get myself <laughs> out for a moment there's a lot of talking in the press isn't there about doctors and nurses and all that kind of stuff i mean i've just had my life saved again by the nhs so i love doctors and nurses as much as the next person but i always say you know how would the hospital be if there were no domestics how would the hospital be if there were no caring staff you know logistic or like it's such a massive and i spoke to a porter actually in a hospital once and it was so it was such a lovely experience because they were so happy to be on the team they were like, I am on the team. I And if I don't turn up, nobody gets any surgery. Nobody gets anything. And I was like, what a brilliant applica- you know, demonstration of that principle is. I could not agree with you more. Like more, more celebration and championing of every single person who's involved in making frontline care happen. Should, should just That would just make things so much better. 
Cool. Okay. Thanks. Right. Well, I think we'll we'll just we're coming close to wrapping it up. So I just wonder, um, and I should say, incidentally, to listeners, that we've got another episode. I'm deliberately not talking to Jess too much about the Goldacre review because a because I didn't want to kind of mark, get her to mark her own homework. I think the review speaks for itself, and I personally think it's excellent. And I've said that many times. But we have an episode forthcoming where we're going to have various representatives from across the system talking about the Goldacre review. So it, just in case people are sitting frustrated, saying we'll talk about more about the Goldacre review that's coming. But I wonder, Jess, if you just wanted to just give your give you what are the key messages just what's your kind of headlines that you would you would like to give about the review my key headlines oh, that's so tricky there's so much in there but i i think the key headlines have to be the things that have wonderfully been picked up in 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 the in the data strategy you know work in a in a sensible way work inside a trusted research environment or a secure data environment um, make sure that you're sharing your code openly that it's not just about being perfect and writing the best line of Python or R or SQL code. It's just about getting it out there and building a commons of knowledge. And then also making sure that it's not just privacy, it's also purpose. I think those are those are the my three key takeaways. Yes. And I'd like to augment that point. Actually, Je- I was confessing my ignorance about ethics before the call and Jess was confessing her ignorance about data science and programming. But I would like to echo her comment about code, because I often speak to people who think that the only people who publish code are people who write perfect code. My code is garbage. You can go on GitHub at any time you like. Go and find me. I'm Chris Bealey on GitHub. I write all sorts of terrible rubbish and it's fine. It's no one. And no, no one has ever laughed at me or pointed at me or taken my dinner money or they're just happy to have it shared. And if it's not very good, they don't use it, but it might help. Them. So please. Um, yes, I would very much like to echo that. Um, okay, that's it. So thank you very much, Jess. So I'll just do my usual wrapping up bit. So I'd like to thank Tom Jemmett very much for his editing. Another fairly disaster. I said to Jess before we started recording that we can edit out disasters, but actually there weren't any disasters. So it's a fairly easy time for him, but I'm sure he'll make it um, beautiful nonetheless. I'll put some links to uh, Jess's various bits and bobs, uh, Twitters and websites and whatnot, if you'd like to hear more. I'm sure I'll put links to stuff from the Goldacre review as well and anything else that Jess thinks you might find interesting. If you have any comments or questions about the podcast, and we've never had one yet, so please be the first. I think, do you know, I can't remember the email address. I'll put it in the show notes. I think it's nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net, but something like that. I will put it in the show notes and you can look it up on the website. And yes, we'll leave it there and I'll thank Jess again and we'll see you next time.